Um, I have to just go ahead and put this out there. Uh, I love this star. It is absolutely amazing. The thing that I realized standing in the back is that if I stand in the middle of this table, it puts that star right over my head for the video online, so um, that makes me extremely uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> if you see me awkwardly moving this way, that is why. <laughs> um, so bear with me, um, all the, the, new, the newness. This is beautiful um, as we get to dive into this season of Advent. So in this season of Advent, we span the already and not yet of the coming of the King. We celebrate and we remember Jesus' first coming. All right. Are we back? Okay. Thanks for bearing with us. <laughs> so all of that to say, we're in this season of Advent, right? And we are in this already and not yet coming of the King. And so between Jesus' first coming and the foretelling and the foundations laid out in preparation for the redemptive work of God for our salvation. At the same time, we eagerly anticipate Jesus' second coming, his return in full glory for the restoration of setting things right. This series, The Coming of the King, is coming on the heels of the Old Testament matriarchs, the Old Testament uh, matriarchs of the faith, where we can see God at work through the lives of people and through families through the ages and into this season of looking at the prophecy that unfolds this rescue plan that was laid out before the foundation of the earth. Y'all, Joel did such an amazing job starting us off last week. If you weren't here or you didn't get to see it, um, didn't get to hear it, I want to encourage you to go um, check it out, the video on YouTube or the podcast on um, our website or on iTunes. But the first week of Advent, we had the lighting of the hope candle. And Joel laid out for us this sense of anticipation that comes, that comes with the start of the Christian calendar. And we find ourselves in this season of waiting but active waiting, where we are participants in the story, not just readers of it. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, and as you saw, we lit the peace candle today. Y'all, peace in this season, I don't know about you, but feels a little bit laughable to me. Peace in this season leading up to Christmas? Like, are you kidding <laughs> Do you know everything that is going on right now? The chaos, actually, might be the more appropriate candle for the reality we are in, right? There's so much just weighing out, like going to that party and going to that party, getting the perfect gift for that person. I don't have enough money, so I'm putting it on the credit card, and then it goes right down the line, and I'll pay for it later. The weight and the pressure of even being with family sometimes that is difficult to step into, right? It doesn't feel like peace. And then to look at the news headlines of any given day of this last week, nothing about it says peace in this season. The pace of the world feels like it is pre-pandemic times when we are still carrying 
the COVID fatigue that weighs so heavily. This season doesn't feel very peaceful sometimes. But peace, peace is a mark of the coming of the king and his kingdom. God's kingdom coming can seem idealistic, and it is. But it's an ideal that is unfolding in our present reality. Not yet complete, but in process. Speaking of idealistic, anybody grow up with Dr. Seuss? Yeah, all right, all right, seeing some hands. Um, Dr. Seuss, like just so many of the stories continue to this day to hit my heart. Y'all, if you know me and my love for the Grinch, this is my one year-round Christmas item, my mug, Merry Grinchmas, all the time. Um, but the Grinch and the story, the story of this heart that is so small and getting smaller that is able to burst forth with the joy of this season and capturing the meaning of it, right? There is just a redemption that takes place in that story that I love so much. My kids can tell you how much. (laughs) There's Grinch stuff everywhere in our house. And the movie, The Grinch, is how I start the Christmas season every year. Um, And so my whole family, the whole Simmons family, gathers around Um, right after Thanksgiving, we turn on Jim Carrey's edition of The Grinch. And (laughs) it is my favorite movie of all time, y'all. I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. I know it's weird, but it is, and I love it. Um, But the story of The Grinch, and there are so many stories of Dr. Seuss. And actually, this week, um, on Friday night, I got to go watch the kids' version of Seussical the Musical, which Avery, my youngest, um, was in the cast as a jungle citizen. So she's hiding right now. She is uh, not loving being called out. But the, the musical was absolutely amazing. It was the first time I had encountered Seussical the Musical. Anybody seen it? Yeah. All right. All right. We got some folks. It is um, absolutely a beautiful compilation of the stories of Dr. Seuss. Right, from the cat in the hat, to Horton hears a who, to Horton hatches the egg, the Grinch makes an appearance in the full version, there's the Lorax, and, and many more. And so many of those stories, like as I look back, I realize they were such a part of my childhood. It was such a gift to actually like, see how Dr. Seuss actually influenced much of, of my childhood and my upbringing. So if you want to capture a picture of my, my childhood and the influences in my life, Dr. Seuss and Mr. Rogers, okay? Like that's those, <laughs> right? Sweet. I, yes, that like just the influences were, were amazing. And to reflect on that now. But in Seussical, the musical, the beauty of exploring creative imagination and dreaming of what is possible in a world of friendship and love, where the value of every person is seen, right? It is this beautiful, beautiful picture of what could be. Idealistic, some might say. My favorite song in the musical is It's Possible. And the line in there that just is repeated over and over again, 
Chris Clark and, and I were singing it a bit this morning. Anything is possible. And I'm not going to sing it, but any, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. Anything is possible. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. You got it. You got it. Darren uh, on display today. <laughs> but anything is possible. The idealistic nature of it. But God's kingdom coming, as it seems idealistic, and it is, but it's an ideal that is unfolding in our present reality. See, God's kingdom is initially established in a garden where all creation, humanity, and the created order are in right relationship with Almighty God, its creator. The ideal of the creator and the created in perfect union, perfect love fully on display for us. Then when humanity is deceived by the evil one, they think they can rise up and be like God. And you may have heard how that story goes, but let me remind you. The ideal is broken. Humanity's eyes are opened to good and evil in the world. And though their sentence was to be death, their lives are spared And they're sent out of the garden with the hope and the promise that their descendant would crush the head of the evil one. Humanity over and over again tells the same story, lives out the same story, trying to achieve equality with God by going their own way. And each time failure, death, and destruction come upon them as they devolve into the systems of injustice, of trying to make themselves great. Through the story of Noah and on to the Tower of Babel, this continues a cycle until God then chooses to work through one family to reveal himself to the whole world. He's going to work through this one family for the sake of the world to reveal himself and work to restore what was lost in the garden. In Genesis 12, we pick up and we see God call Abram, who we will soon know as Abraham. He makes a promise to Abram. And it'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. But Genesis 12 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. What a beautiful promise, an ideal that Abram's name would be made great because this great nation would be a blessing to others. That through this one family, all of the people of the earth would be blessed. Did I mention it's ideal? Overcoming their own self-determination over and over again. We get to the place where Abraham's son Isaac And Isaac's son Jacob 
the people of Israel become a great nation. They become many, many people, so big, and God appoints judges over them to lead and guide the people according to his will and purpose. The people of Israel are then looking around, right, at all of the nations around them. They're saying, hey, they have a king to lead them. We need a king. God, give us a king. Come on. Hey, God, here we are. We want to look like the other nations of the world. Give us a king. But God tells them through the prophet Samuel, he is their king. God is their king. And it would be a really, really bad idea to appoint human kings over them. But they persist. And I imagine they whine a bit. And so God allows them to have kings. He said, you're going to get what you ask for. So we have King Saul and King David, King Solomon. And then the kingdoms divide north and south, and each of them have their own string of kings. When we talk about kings, I worry a little bit about the antiquated nature of the image for us in our modern context. Anybody else struggle with, like, what would it be like to have a king? Like, if you look at history, is there any good example of a king? No, right? Amen, right? <laughs> Jesus, that's, that's what we got. And um, absolutely, absolutely, he is the great king who has come and will come again. So it brings us to the passage for today, Psalm 2. Took us a while to get there, but Psalm 2 is this psalm of coronation. Many of you who were with us over the summer know we spent the summer praying the psalms. And so I'm feeling like it's summertime and we're going back to the psalms for a minute, okay? In the world today, like, to even think about a king, right? A, a monarch, whether it's a queen, a sultan, a prince, a monarch. Like, it's even hard for us to imagine in our context what that might look like. But in preparing for this, learning that actually 43 countries of the 193 recognized nations by the United Nations actually are um, ruled by a monarch who is head of state. 43. I think 13 of those technically follow, uh, fall under the UK. But the still, um, the image of a coronation is actually something we're going to get to see in May of next year as King Charles comes to his coronation. So we can kind of imagine a little bit of that pomp and circumstance that comes with the coronation. But we're going to look at the coronation of a, the kings of Israel today in Psalm 2. So you can flip over there in your Bible, or you can pull it up on your phone. It will be on the screen. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Why do the nations conspire, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. And the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. 
he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them into pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God, this is your word, and as we read it, may it speak to our hearts today, revealing the coming of the King, King Jesus, who has come and will come again. Reveal to us the depths of your heart for us and the rescue plan that you set out before the foundation of the earth. Amen. So let's walk through this for just a moment. If this is a coronation psalm, then one who has been appointed as the king of Israel is ascending to the throne. He's receiving the power and authority of the king. But the kingdom of God runs differently from the other kingdoms of the world. We must understand that from the time of King Saul up through the time of the fall of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel and the kingdom of God are synonymous. It was a theocracy. An earthly king is a representative of God's divine work and power. And of course, this was an ideal. We know how theocracies typically go in our world, right? As we look at human history. But the ideal here would be that the other nations of the earth, they look to the God of Israel in submission and surrender. That they are blessed through the nation and the people of Israel. Instead, other nations do not understand the role and relationship of God. They come violently against the nation of Israel even forming alliances with other military nations to come against the anointed one, the king over Israel. And the people of Israel and the kings of Israel did not follow God's commands in such a way that the other nations would understand. And so the powers of the earth come against them. Looking on down at verses four through six, when the kingdoms of the world plan an attempt to come against Israel, it is a laughable thing to the almighty God whose throne is in the heavenly realm. Because if the Lord is almighty, then nothing could come against that is unknown or unexpected. In fact, it is so arrogant and audacious that they would conspire and plot against God that his compassionate, gracious, slow-to-anger character is being pushed. The very announcement that is made, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, 
is terrifying to the nations, it says. Because if Almighty has enthroned a king, then who could possibly stand against him? The psalm continues, this coronation proclamation is made. You are my son, and I have become your father. It's the the expression of relationship of the earthly king appointed to rule over Israel and Almighty God, this relationship that is deeply connected. And on the coronation day, the relationship becomes so close as a father to a son. And since the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, as the king is adopted as the son of God, his inheritance and possessions would be endless. The king would lack absolutely nothing. All the resources imaginable would be at their fingertips. All the nations would either come into relationship and know the Lord, the God of Israel, or they would come against Israel, and they themselves would experience destruction. The king of Israel would have been expected to set things right, to release his people from captivity, and to heal the land. And so in verses 10 through 12, the nations of the earth They are warned. Remember that God's character is slow to anger and full of loyal love. They're given opportunity to serve and to honor God, to follow the way of wisdom and not destruction. With the sign of a kiss, which is not a romantic kiss, okay? It is a sign that the, the rulers of the other nations can pay homage and be in submission to the Almighty. But those who follow their own way and bring about injustice and destruction, the party is going to be over and the wrath of God will be brought. But for those who take refuge or put their trust in the Lord, blessing will be theirs. Can't you feel it? The Christmas spirit of this passage? (laughs) Who's feeling that peaceful, easy feeling right now? Okay, hang with me a little longer, all right? We're, We're going somewhere. This coronation psalm has a direct connection to, and and it flows out of God's promise to King David. The promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 8 through 17. See, God promises David a dynasty. He promises him a line that would never end, that would continue on for all eternity, that there's a king who would reign eternal. And so this promise comes to David at the pinnacle of his kingship. He is the great king remembered in all of the history of Israel. So the point at which we are in his life when this promise is made, you know, he was a shepherd boy who gets anointed as king, to be king someday. While there is a king on the throne, he is anointed to be king, and that doesn't go well for him later. 
But he then steps up to fight a giant that all of the army of Israel was afraid to step up against. And he takes down Goliath. He becomes a threat to the current king, Saul, and he runs for his life because Saul wants to take his life. He goes into hiding, and then he's chased again. And finally, he wins the victory. He fights against nations, the enemies of Israel, and he becomes the rightful king over God's people, a mighty king with compassion to unite all of the tribes of Israel into one kingdom. He brings about this unity and this oneness, and he establishes Jerusalem as the the political capital of Israel. And he's just finished bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem so that it is also the religious capital of Israel. And so Jerusalem is this place where he is sitting, and he's sitting contemplating the goodness of God, and he says to God, hey, if it would be okay with you, I feel like I should make you a house. I should build you a temple. I live in a great palace. You, God, should have a dwelling place. And so this is before, this is before his terrible moral failure of adultery and murder. And so this is where we pick up right now with God's promise in David's story. It says, Now then, to the prophet Nathan speaking to David, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you, wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names among the greatest men of the earth. I will provide a palace, uh, sorry, a place for my people, Israel. I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Okay, it's sounding a little bit better. Hopeful even. Gosh, peaceful, right? Are you with me? That plant them, 
where they have a home of their own, that no longer would they be disturbed, that his house, his kingdom, it will endure forever. There's peace in that. However, we've got two major, major problems here. One is King David's horrific moral failure. Adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband to cover up his misdeeds. It's going to bring a series of consequences that will result in even more destruction for David's family. And it's going to have him running for his life again. See, David repents and he is forgiven. But the consequences of his actions are not taken away. And so that leads to the second problem that when Israel falls to the Babylonians in 586 BC and the people of Israel are taken into exile, it seems that there is an end to David's line and the promised eternal throne is not realized. See, the eternal nature of the promise to David and the coronation to overcome enemy forces it's not made complete in David's lifetime. David picked up the cycle again to try to do things his own way and brings about systems of injustice that devolve into destruction. It would have been expected by David that this would be realized maybe in his lifetime or maybe through his son Solomon. And in fact, Solomon does build a house for the Lord. He builds the temple in Jerusalem. But it wouldn't be made complete in him either. In fact, the kings of Israel would start to look more and more like the nations of the earth that this coronation psalm speaks against. So all of this, what the heck does the coronation of the kings of Israel have to do with me celebrating Advent in December of 2022. I'm glad you asked. This is where both the coronation psalm of Psalm 2 and God's promise to David, they turn out to be a much larger view than any king of Israel could ever have imagined. When all seems lost, God was working all the time, not just for another king to come, but for the king to come, for the Messiah to arrive on the scene. And so these passages become messianic in their nature to tell the story of the coming of the king that would come through David's line to make a way for the whole world, not just the people of Israel. And the enemy to be defeated is not another nation, but in fact the evil one who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That the Lord himself, Emmanuel, God with us, would enter into time and space to set all things right. And so if there is the coming of the king, then there's going to be a coronation where David's coronation or any of the kings of Israel would have been a one-day celebration, maybe a week. 
the coronation of Jesus happens over his life of ministry in the world. Over the three years of Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God is a central theme. The kingdom of God coming. And at least three different times recorded throughout the Gospels where Jesus is identified by the Father. You are my son. Just as the proclamation that the Lord declares in this coronation psalm. So the thing about a king is that there can only really be one king. There can't be more than one at a time. It doesn't work out. There's one ruling and reigning king. So if we say Jesus is king, that means really no one or no thing else can be. If we accept Jesus as our king in his coming, what does that mean for everything else in our life? Our work, our family, our friendships, our community. So what does the coronation of the kings of Israel have to do with Advent? Everything. Everything. Because God is faithful and trustworthy to answer and fulfill the promises that God makes. There's still a problem here, you might say. In case you haven't noticed, you might say, tongue-in-cheek, there's still a whole lot of pain and suffering in the world. Turmoil among the nations, still powers rising up against powers rising up against the ways of Jesus and you're right. There are people who are hungry. There are people without a place to lay their head. There are people hurting from the weight of the world. People bound by sin, by addiction, by systems of injustice. We find ourselves still in this space of two kingdoms. A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light a kingdom of wickedness and a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of lies and deception and a kingdom of truth and grace, a kingdom of pain and suffering, a kingdom of justice and mercy, kingdoms of the world and a kingdom of God. The battles are still going on, but the victory has already been won. Instead of violence and wrath being poured out on all those who oppose God, Jesus takes it all upon himself. In the brutal beating and death suffered on the cross, though he did no wrong, he took the punishment for our wrongs. And in his resurrection, delivered the ultimate blow the crushing of the head of the evil one. The arrival of Jesus set in motion this rising tide of the coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom coming, it can seem idealistic, and it is. But it's an ideal that is unfolding in our present reality, not yet complete but in process.
See, he overcame death and the grave already that we might live in victory even today. That in the midst of the chaos of this season and every other season, we carry with us the peace that comes only from our King. As we actively await the return of the King, we get to invite others into this victory with us and into this space of peace to surrender, trying to be kings or queens ourselves and instead to become sons and daughters of the king of kings. We are invited to be active participants in the waiting, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to bring sight to the blind, set the captives free and bind up the brokenhearted to sow seeds of peace wherever we are. And first, we experience that peace ourselves. So to close today, I want to read these words together. From Zechariah, it's chapter 9 and 10. It's going to be on the screen. Let's read this together. See, your king comes for you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. He comes for you. Peace will be proclaimed to the nations and over all of the earth. Friends, what's one thing that you are waiting on God for right now? Maybe you haven't even asked him yet. Go ahead, you can say it out loud. Did I hear strength? Whatever it is, wherever you are, is there one thing that you could let go of in this Advent season that would bring peace? Are you watching? Are you actively waiting for the return of the King? Friends, God is faithful to fulfill the promises that God makes. And in fact, he has made a new promise to you and to me. He has established a covenant with us that whoever believes in him, whoever loves him with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul and strength, their sin will be forgiven. and they will last and live eternally. He sealed that promise for us with his body and his blood. And so as we receive from this loaf, and as we receive from this cup, 
we confirm our belief. We confirm our trust in this new promise that he has made for us. That your sins may be forgiven. That you will be set free and have everlasting life. And so we're going to confirm that as we receive this today. And I'm going to invite you to come to the table. I invite our servers to come on down and uh, be on this side. Hope and AJ will come and, and serve. And as we come, we'll come down this side and across the front. They'll tear off a piece of the bread and you can dip it in the cup. Right, this fulfillment of the eternal king who has come and who will come again. Just as the last line of the coronation psalm says today, blessed are those who put their trust in the Lord. Friends, come to the table.